Hi, everyone. You're listening to Canada Horse Podcast, and we're your hosts, Nikki Porter and Nadine Smith. We strive to enhance the lives of horse owners by facilitating conversations that make people want to talk. It is our passion for horses and continuous learning that is the driving force behind the conversations here on Canada Horse Podcast. We believe in education over judgment and informed choices over following the crowd. As equestrians, it's important for us to know the whys behind the decisions we make for both ourselves and our horses. So if you think about the uh, equestrian sport, it's is wildly unique in one key way in that there are two minds and two nervous systems involved, the rider and the horse. So in all sport, it's important and useful to learn how to manage your mind and, and manage your nervous system for better performance. But in equestrian sport, it has extra weight and importance because our own ability as the rider to regulate our mind and our nervous system has a direct impact on the, the nervous system of the horse. And that just impacts things in so many different ways. Hello, this is episode 49 of Canada Horse Podcast, and I think this is going to be a fun episode. Our guest today is sport and exercise psychology coach, Annika McGivern. I first heard of Annika when I read a really timely magazine article that she wrote on high performance values for equestrians. It was sometime back around Christmas. I got, I get like one magazine per year <laughs> in my stocking, and so I like actually sat down to read it. And at that time we were preparing to record our episode on equestrian values. So it like really stood out to me. I remember calling you Nikki and being like, look, this is exactly what we're talking about. And so I made a note to follow her on Instagram and touch base about getting her on here to talk with us. So it's funny because we've actually talked a little bit about divine timing over the last couple episodes. And that seems to be just another example of that. So Annika is an Equine Canada competition coach with a BA in psychology and a master's in science in sport and exercise psychology. She works with people to help them reach their goals and get them training and competing with confidence. Her work focuses on optimizing the ability to use your mind as a resource. So we talk quite a bit privately and on the podcast about competition, our personal goals, and also how all that works with our values. So we think that this really is a perfect fit for the podcast and just the direction that we're going. And we really want to thank you for coming on with us, Annika. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And and that's so fun to hear that story about you reading that article. Um, and nice to to hear like a little story of those those articles kind of filtering out into the horse community and having some positive impact. So yeah, just delighted to be here. Yeah, that's great. I think it really speaks to the change that we're seeing in the whole horse community right now, which we've talked a bit about. And, and we just wanted to give a little shout out to our listeners today, because we've been pretty clear that we've changed a little bit of the direction of our podcast as of the last few episodes. And we've become, I think like even more vulnerable and authentic in the stories that we're sharing ourselves. And when I put out an Instagram story yesterday, just yesterday, asking people in preparation for this episode, what are they struggling with? Like, what are their mental hurdles when it comes to competition? And we got so many responses and they were not just 
you know, generic responses. Many were relatable and a lot similar, but just we really appreciate the vulnerability and the trust that you guys, our listeners, are putting in us to share your concerns and your struggles. And we're really glad to have you here, Annika, to hopefully get some tips and advice on how to deal with those things. Yeah, there's so much we can talk about today that will will respond to those concerns and those those worries that I know a lot of us have. And um, and I know there's a lot of those out there in the equestrian community because of the work that I do within the industry and the community and all the amazing people that I work with who, who open up and are vulnerable with me about what what they're struggling with. And um, and the it's amazing the continuity there is across all those people. You know, we, we all struggle with a lot of the same things. And yet a lot of us feel that we're alone in that struggle. And so I think there's so much power in platforms like what you guys are doing here that help make it just to make this more commonly spoken about so we can recognize it's actually very much a shared experience. And we can really do a lot to support each other to not just perform better, but actually feel better and have like higher well-being in our pursuit of high performance in sport. I love that. To start... Why don't we just narrow down the sort of work it is that you do exactly with equestrians and other athletes, and then we can allow the conversation just kind of take us where people need us to go. Definitely. So really, I think my work simmers down to a few sort of core pillars. So the first pillar is, is really understanding the mind better so that we can be more self-aware and recognize the things that might be blocking us or interfering with our performance and our well-being in sport, and then also take action in different ways to in, improve things, right, or just change things uh, for better outcomes. So that awareness and that understanding is really key. And um, and then there's also a big piece around right now that we understand it, how do we actually implement these new ideas? And that's where it gets really practical. So um, there's a lot of different exercises, there's a lot of different tools, different models, um, learning how to uh, react differently in specific moments, learning how to create different emotional associations with different experiences, things like that, which um, sound very theoretical when you talk about them, but, but are actually very practical when you get into the nitty gritty of making it happen in the moment. Oh, there's so much there. <laughs> I'm like writing. <laughs> I know I saw you taking notes and, and like, I mean, this is kind of like a, I don't know, a rhetorical question, but I do feel like maybe some of us can like start thinking too much and to be too self-aware, you know, like Nikki and I, we really think a lot about everything. And I think sometimes we get in our own way with the amount of things that we think about. <laughs> So it's, it's probably uh, the underlying cause of some of the issues that we run into. So, you know, what is the benefit of this mental skills training for equestrians specifically? So if you think about the uh, equestrian sport is, is wildly unique in one key way in that there are two minds and two nervous systems involved, the rider and the horse. So in all sport, it's important and useful to learn how to manage your mind and, and manage your nervous system for better performance. But in equestrian sport, it has extra weight and importance because our own ability as the rider to regulate our mind and our nervous system has a direct impact on the, the nervous system of the horse. And that just impacts things in so many different ways, right? And so um, helping riders to do this, to learn these skills, 
helps them to be more confident and more successful in a lot of different ways, depending on the challenges that they're facing. Some of the common themes that I get through my work are um, riders struggling a lot with confidence and not just um, sort of a, you know, in some sports, for example, like golf, we would have confidence issues, but those confidence issues are much more related to maybe like a fear of, of messing up in front of a lot of people, feeling embarrassed. In equestrian sport, typically our confidence issues are more related to like actual really scary events that happen to us, right? Like we, we've fallen in a really scary way, maybe multiple times. And when that happens, our body can learn this almost like trauma response where the, the fear and the nerves we have are very deep rooted. And so there's um, so much benefit to in riding to, to learning to overcome those scary things that inevitably can happen to us as a part of the sport so that we can continue in a way that is actually allows us to be safer in the future um, and access uh, a confidence that is grounded in our body and our mind. And um, as you can imagine, there's a lot there, but that's kind of the, 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 uh, the quick way, I suppose, of explaining it. Um, and then there's also another aspect, a way, you know, if even if a rider has a lot of confidence, there is still a lot of, there, our sport is incredibly technical, right? And so there's so much um, around focus and learning to refine skills that becomes very, very key when we start to move up the levels in terms of competition. Um, and that in stuff around identity, right? Like learning to see yourself as that next level of rider and not get stuck in this feeling of, you know, I'm a meter 10 rider and that's where I'm comfortable, but, um, but actually now I need to be a meter 20 rider because that's what I'm moving towards being. So it's mm -hmm. probably from that blurb. There's a lot to it. And there's a lot of different ways it can help. There you is. Take, that, take it, Nikki. I know you want that one. There's <laughs> so much. There's so much. I love the explanation of the uniqueness around the equestrian sport in mm -hmm. understanding the effect of you're not just learning this sport and then you're off on your own. You, mm -hmm. you know, the impact that has on the horse. And then, you know, we're talking competition today, but this has to do with everything from how the horse feels in the barn to how they lead to the pasture with you, all the things. So I've, I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I think that it is going to expand to all areas of people's horse life. But what really struck me and what you were just saying is that like messy, sticky stage that happens between one level and the next. So I like, I judge shows and I see it so I see when someone is like at a certain level and they're seeing the next level, but physically they're like a little late or mentally they're a little late, but they are they're They know that it's a possibility to get there and it becomes incredibly frustrating. And mm -hmm. I, I do feel like it's maybe where I am right now as a writer as well. So I relate to that. And I feel like it's not talked about very often that, mm -hmm. that messy, sticky stage of pushing yourself to the next level and the amount of doubt and frustration that can happen in there. Do you mind talking a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's something that uh, comes up a lot with the the riders that I'm working with who are very competitively focused and, and have on this track and have these goals to be moving up the levels. So there's a couple layers to that. So 
One is that is the identity piece. So we may not realize it, but we're we often form an identity around the the level of rider we've become accustomed to being. So let's take the example I used before. So if we've been competing at meter 10 for for a while, we sort of see ourselves as a meter 10 rider. And if we can do that consistently um, and do that consistently well, then that feels strongly like a piece of our identity. And we feel okay owning that because we feel like we have all this evidence that supports this idea that we are a meter 10 rider. So now if that's where we are mentally, and now we want to go to, let's say, meter 15s, there's this interesting thing that happens where we often start approaching the challenge of meter 15 from that mindset and identity of being a meter 10 rider. So what that can manifest or look like then is that we head into the ring going, Ooh, like, okay, I'm a meter 10 rider, but I'm, I'm just going to like, give this a whirl. I'm going to take a stab at it. And it's almost like we're building this assumption in that we're, we're not going to be able to do it very well, which follows logically. If we, if we have a strong belief around ourselves, just being a meter 10 rider. So, um, it's almost like the previous identity holds us back and stops us from really stepping into and owning this, this next level identity. And it's hard to do that. It's hard to say I'm a meter 15 rider if you've never competed as a meter in meter 15s, or maybe you've only done a couple, right? Maybe you've done a couple and they haven't gone particularly well. You've had some rails or, you know, things, things haven't gone according to plan. So that can sort of hold people back from really owning that, that new identity. But until we learn to own that new identity, we get stuck in a pattern of like mindset and self-doubt and belief that actually can hold us back from really performing well at that level. Okay. So does that make sense so far? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And um, so part of the way we can start to unpick that is to look at, so, so part of what we do mentally, right, is we, we kind of attach a, more significance to moving up a level than, than there needs to be. We, we have a habit of overcomplicating things, right? So actually a jump from meter 10 to meter 15 is a difference of five centimeters. Hmm. Our horse probably doesn't even notice that, right? We notice it because now it has a new name. (laughs) Um, It's a new class. Mm -hmm. And our mind can sometimes play this trick on us where those five centimeters seem to to really like beef up the jumps and all of a sudden they seem way bigger. But when we break down the, the key skills that are involved in jumping a meter 10 versus a meter 15, they're virtually identical, right? There might be a couple small tweaks that we need to keep in mind. But, but it's actually just an extension of what we're already doing. Mm-hmm. So that's the first step to recognize that, that actually it's not as big a change as our, as our mind is, is maybe making it out to be. And then there's a decision to be made, right? If I'm by choosing, what makes you a, a meter 15 rider, right? Do you have to be someone who is consistently winning in meter 15 to be a meter 15 rider? Or do you actually just need to be someone who's doing it, who's, riding meter 15 at home. And we'll assume that you're doing that if you're coming out to compete at meter 15. So if you're someone who's who's consistently riding that height at home and entering those classes, then you are a meter 15 rider. You're there to do it. And so if you can do the work to really step into that identity and start, and you need to bring it into your self-talk, right? And start reminding yourself and owning this and saying, no, I'm a meter 15 rider. 
I'm not here to survive. I'm not here to scrape by. I'm not here to give this a go. I'm here to do the best job I can do. I'm here to, to ride against this course and ride it well to the absolute best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Then we get a shift. We start to see that shift. I feel like I understand where you have felt in that position, mm-hmm. but I also feel like, you know, Annika, we've been just like listening and letting it all sink in right now because it's very applicable to us. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but also like Nikki, I feel like you've done a very good job of like your mental mindset going into those competitions, but I feel like, yeah, I feel like I have, but the way that Annika, you're describing that, that identity, I feel like I need to take on the identity of the class. So for a little context, I'm in a new discipline and I was pretty forced just by, by the classes available um, and the level horse I was riding to go into the open right off the bat. So I was riding with open riders. I have not identified as an open rider in my Mm -hmm. discipline yet, but yet that is the class that I'm having to compete at at home. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that this is, you know, this is a conversation that we're having because it is something I'm going to take away from um, as I enter into the show season this year and look at, you know, where am I identifying within the classes that I'm in? Am I just here just saying like, I'm just here because I have to actually, mm-hmm. I don't belong here, but I'm here because I don't have another choice or can I step into that ownership of that, that, um, that class and that identity? I love that. Yeah. yeah. And this is a quick add on to that. Cause I think this is quite relevant to what you were just saying there is that part of the knock-on effect from changing that that mindset and, and shifting your identity and, and owning that identity is that it shifts our focus um, from can I do this to how am I going to do this, mm-hmm. which is a really subtle but really important shift. So if you imagine walking the course, if in the back of your mind, the question you're asking yourself is, can we do this? Our mind has a, our brain will answer the questions we pose to ourselves. And so the brain will come up with the answer of, well, I'm not sure, which is true. (laughs) The brain isn't sure. Like we're not hundred percent sure if we can do it or not, but that forms this site. It kind of reinforces the the self-doubt. So shifting to, okay, I am a meter 20 or I am an open rider removes that question of, can we do it? And allows us to focus on how am I going to do this to the best of my ability So then if you imagine walking the course with that question in your mind, now you're focusing on all the important things that you can actually influence in your plan for how you're going to tackle the course. Mm -hmm. So good. That's good. Yeah. So, okay. This leads into, I think a lot of people have brought up and even in myself and my examples, imposter syndrome and Mm -hmm. perhaps even like self handicapping, you know, making excuses in your brain for why you can't do it. And also not even accepting when you do do it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, with the imposter syndrome. So maybe you could speak a little bit about how that seems to affect writers. Yeah. The word I tend to use for that is Mm -hmm. self-sabotage. And it's super, super common. Um, and it's actually a fascinating thing. It, we do humans, we're, we're weirdly good at self-sabotage, which seems sort of counterintuitive, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we, it comes up in all aspects of life. And um, so it's certainly not unique to sport or unique to riding. Um, but of course we see the impact of it there for sure. So there's a lot of different ways that, that self-sabotage can impact us. Um, 
from what you just said there around acknowledging when we're doing something well, that might be a nice place to start. Mm-hmm. So one of the the trends that we see um, definitely in equestrian is that we tend to be higher on the scale of perfectionism for whatever reason that the type of people that our sport attracts, uh, we all tend to be a little bit higher on that perfectionist scale. Now, a lot of us see this as a positive. Um, so we see perfectionism as as sort of a, an attention to detail, a, a pushing towards uh, towards excellence, as a sort of striving to be to be really good. And in that context, it is. What's important to know is that there's sort of like two sides to perfectionism. There's like a positive side, but then if we push it too far, it kind of flips and has this like dark, nasty side to it. And if we go too far into perfectionism, what happens is our, our sta- the standards that we set for ourselves become actual perfection, which means we can never achieve those standards because perfection is, of course, a, a myth. So I often describe it as it's like chasing a ghost. You're, you're never going to catch it because it's not actually there. <laughs> um, and so that can lead to all sorts of really, um, really harsh self-criticism. And, and really kind of harsh ways of managing yourself. So if we're used to demanding perfection of ourselves and not expecting any less, it means that we're used to using that, um, that drive towards perfection and that self-criticism as a way of motivating ourselves. So we often have this feeling that like, if I, if I let up on myself a bit here, if I'm kind or compassionate to myself, then I won't want to work as hard anymore. I might somehow lose my motivation and my like will to to work hard at this. We can then as a result of that, really lean into being really awful to ourselves. And so part of that is never accepting anything that we do as good enough. I have a client, uh, many clients who do this, right? Where it doesn't matter if it was a perfectly good round they they always come back and find a problem with it and and are and sometimes are actually very brutal with themselves in their evaluation of of what they just did now the way that this sabotages us is that interestingly although we think that being hard on ourselves is more motivating um what the research shows is that it can motivate us in the short term But if we adopt that as like a long-term strategy, it actually has the complete opposite effect because the harder we are on ourselves, the more we put ourselves into a state of stress and negative emotion. And that stress and negative emotion actually reduces our sense of, of natural spontaneous motivation because it exhausts us. And it ultimately completely interferes with our performance. So the more negative emotion we have floating around in our, in our mind, always the less well we are going to be able to perform in any given moment. So it actually creates this really uh, unhelpful cycle, which is the exact opposite of what we think and hope it will do for us. So that's an example that I would see very, very often in our sport um, where we, we inadvertently self-sabotage ourselves. Nadine, how you feeling? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel seen. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, to just, uh, yeah, to back up a little bit, I've, I've been like deep diving into a lot of endurance 
podcasts and books and like on Mm -hmm. performance and stuff right now, because I'm training for my first marathon. And I have always found it really rewarding and easy to do sports that literally just have to do with like my own body. So like Mm -hmm. running or like obstacle races or anything that doesn't have to do with like what I would say skill, but more. And I saw the book of um, grit by Angela Duckworth on your page. Mm -hmm. And so like, I've always found it like more my avenue to do those types of things where like, I just need to like get in there and try as hard as I can and Mm -hmm. that will work. Mm -hmm. And with equestrian sports, like you just said, that type of attitude has kind of like derailed me a couple of times. Mm-hmm. where it doesn't matter how hard I try or how much I want it. It's like that much pressure just ends up being too much to the point where you're not having fun anymore because you're just like expecting so much. And the more you get stressed out, the more your horse gets stressed out. Yeah. And so like, I can definitely identify with that. And like, I know that a lot of our listeners, mm-hmm. you know, piped in with s- certain stories that were similar to that. And I think like I've gotten to the point, like what you've said, where I put like all the effort in leading up to it. And when I get to a show, even if I do win, like literally win the class, I will come up with, well, you know, the competition wasn't at the high level. It, you know, it was the judge might've missed something, or I think the judge went easy today, but, but it's like, I understand where that's almost like dismissive to the other people in the class. You know what I mean? Like everybody's in that same class and my horse did really well, but like, I can't take that win or I feel the pressure so much before the show that I'm almost hoping something happens that I can't go, you know, and, and feel relief if, if it does happen that I can't go, which I've worked months to get to that point. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know, what do you say to the people that, need to just like take off some of that pressure and how do we just get back to like understanding that we're doing it for the experience and for the enjoyment and that like literally we're getting a ribbon at the end of it like we're not you know we're not doing this for a career at all it's just you're so right like we are such high achievers sometimes in the equestrian world and we need to know how to like dial it down a notch yeah I think that the first thing is to become aware of the fact that, that, that we've been operating under a bit of a myth. And the myth is that, um, yeah, being a high achiever or being a high performer is about being hard on ourselves or that like somehow in order to make it to our full potential, we have to be hard on ourselves. Um, and that any kind of like self-congratulation or, or self, um, you know, uh, affirming, you know, narrative or anything is almost like, like a weakness or a lack of focus or, or something, right. That's just all a myth. And, and I mean, all sports and all sorts of different things have, you know, funny myths in them, but that's a really powerful one. That's that's, that comes up in, in high performance sport. So we recognize that that's a myth. Then we want to say, okay, well, what's, what's more true? Like what's the, what's the reality that we can actually shape our behaviors around. And so Um, a really nice reframe is to recognize that, okay, perfection isn't real. 
And the pursuit of perfection actually has a negative consequence on me because it makes me fearful of mistakes. It makes me fearful of failure, makes me less willing to try. It reduces the amount of effort I put into something because the fear of failure and mistakes overrides my willingness to actually take a risk and take a chance and and go for it and therefore get the practice. So all of that is actually really unhelpful to me as an athlete. And what is helpful to me is to switch my focus towards striving for excellence instead of perfection. Now, some people go, isn't that basically exactly the same thing? Um, They're similar, but they're different in really, really important ways. So excellence is real. That's like a real thing we can strive for, whereas perfection is, is the ghost. So the reason excellence is real is because excellence is about just constant improvement, constant steady progress towards becoming the best rider you can be. Whereas perfection is like, there's almost like we put this expectation on ourselves to be this finished product already. There's no learning in perfection because there's this idea of like, we need to just already be perfect or be this finished, talented product of a rider, right? Whereas excellence is all about learning. It's about constantly learning. Um, It opens us up to feel more willing to make those mistakes and failures because we shift from seeing the goal as being this like flawless rider. We shift towards the goal being of, oh, I'm just someone who's constantly getting better and constantly improving. It opens us up to see that mistakes and failures are an inevitable part of any high-performing growth striving process. They're inevitable. If we're not making mistakes and failing, we're actually not pushing ourselves hard enough. We're just staying in the realm of what's easy and comfortable for us. So it helps facilitate a whole mindset shift um, away from what we call, what is sometimes referred to as an ego orientation towards a mastery orientation. And if you like, we can dive a little bit more into into what that looks like, but it's um, building on what I just said there about perfection versus excellence. Okay. I can't help but think about comparison as you're speaking about this and the danger of comparison. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of striving for excellence because I feel like that that understanding of becoming the best rider you can be and mm-hmm. striving to just be better with each new skill you're learning, each new competition you enter, experience you have, it it almost takes away the pressure of comparison or comparing yourself to others. So do you see that comparison as being something that makes or breaks people on a regular basis? It definitely has a big influence on their day-to-day well-being and anxiety. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that social media actually exasperates that because we have now an opportunity to compare ourselves to thousands of people all around the world who we otherwise would never even have you know seen or, or come into contact with. So there's so many more opportunities for comparison now. Um, so, so yes. And so the way that we kind of relate to other people in our sport is very much influenced by our mindset. So, um, if the, this idea of perfectionism is very much linked to, um, to, to our ego. So our ego is the part of us that is aware, very aware of the self. 
So that means we're very aware of how we compare to other people. We're very aware of how we're being observed and seen all the time. Um, and so perfectionism is, is therefore kind of um, uh, sort of exasperates the ego or, or makes the ego stronger if, if we become very perfectionistic. And so then, yeah, we kind of get caught in this trap of, of always thinking first and foremost, like, how am I being observed? How is my performance comparing to how other people observing other people's performance? And so it drives this desire to look as talented as possible, which is actually, which as a, as a core desire. So if you think about like the core desire of perfectionism or the ego as being to look really talented, um, that's in direct opposition with actually learning because in order to learn and improve, sometimes we have to be willing to, to look a little messy (laughs) or, or make some mistakes and not look perfect and polished as we move through that like growth phase towards, you know, becoming comfortable and, and accomplished at that next level. Um, so, so yes, so that, that focus on perfectionism kind of like bigs up the ego in our system and makes us hyper aware of, of how we look compared to everybody else. Um, which unfortunately takes our focus away from the things that actually improve us as riders. So if we can shift towards that excellence focus, another way of, of talking about that is, um, to say that, uh, so we have the ego that's focused on the self. There's also this other mindset or perspective called the mastery perspective which um, demonstrates the fact that we also have this part of us that is its primary concern is just always learning and improving and getting better. So in pursuit of of excellence or mastery. Um, And that part of us doesn't care how we look because it's about actually actually improving and actually understanding like the mysteries and complexities of the sport. Um, and so we, that part of us is measuring our progress against our own uh, improvement, mm-hmm. as opposed to getting caught up in comparing how we look to how someone else looks. And so when we can shift into that mindset, it allows us to focus on the things that actually really influence our progress in the sport and not get caught up in the, um, the very, you know, like that, all that comparison stuff, it's, it can be very captivating and we can get easily kind of get caught up in it or even like a bit addicted to it. Um, but ultimately it does nothing to actually help us progress and improve as riders. What do you think, Nadine? I think that that's really helpful for a lot of people. I think that you're right in social media, in any different aspect of life, we can get caught up in comparison and in equestrians. We're no different, you know, one of the things that came in from one of our listeners was her, you know, the stressor stress and pressure that she felt not having a horse that was as expensive or valuable as other people that might be there and the judgment around that. And I think we could put in like your horse trailer or your equipment or any, any of your gear that you bring to a show or your setup and how you feel when you compare yourself to others, or you maybe you're getting outright judgment or criticism because your horse isn't as valuable as other people. And I'm not sure, you know, what advice that we can give to people that are, that are getting that except for the fact, you know, well, this is coming from me, but like that you're there for your own experience and not for 
the the judgment of others. But what do you think about that, Annika? Yeah, it's such a common experience in our sport because there is uh, such an enormous range, isn't there, of of socioeconomic influences, right? Like in just the people that participate in our sport. And so for me, that really comes down to understanding like your own uh, purpose and meaning and sort of your own deeper why as to why you're participating in the sport. Um, And almost kind of links back into values, you know, um, because if we aren't really clear on our own values, then often they can get sort of replaced by, I just heard someone refer to them as, as junk values, which I thought was a really fun analogy because his his analogy was that, yeah, like junk values, they, they kind of give you this momentary sugar rush, like junk food, but ultimately they're like, they're not good for you at all. so an example of that would be valuing, yeah, like valuing the 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 financial um, resource. Sorry, I didn't say that right. So valuing the um, just the, like the monetary aspect of the sport, the sport. So valuing having a more expensive saddle, for example, or valuing having the most expensive or beautiful horse trailer or the most expensive or valuable horse. Um, and the reason that's kind of a junk value is because interestingly, right. We, we actually know that those riders who have the more expensive horses and the more expensive trailers aren't necessarily any more confident or happy in themselves than, than those who don't. Like some of my clients come from very wealthy backgrounds and have, you know, six horses and are competing on international circuits in Europe and like things that like my younger self only dreamed of. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they are struggling with like major challenges in their mindset. And that actually in many ways interrupt them from enjoying sometimes, you know, interrupt them from enjoying all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so it's about really checking in with your own values and recognizing, you know, has your mind or your thinking been kind of hijacked by these junk values? And can we go a little deeper t- to get in touch with like, why do you do this? And for many of us, when we do that, we realize that it is about the experience. It is about the challenge, right? If you are an equestrian, you are choosing challenge every day because it is a tough sport. (laughs) You know, if you didn't enjoy challenge, there's no way you'd be in this sport. You'd be doing something way simpler. Um, And so sometimes we forget that though. And we forget that we value challenge, that we value uh, things being hard because that's what causes us to grow. Uh, we forget that we value the experience of progressing and developing a relationship with a horse. And so I think that if we can anchor back to those values, that can help us to kind of balance ourselves within that context of comparison. Okay. That was a great question, Nadine. I have, so we've kind of covered the mindset while we're at the show. Mm-hmm. But what about that person who feels that drive and they really want to go and compete and they want to do the things, but when it comes down to actual show day, it is that pre-show stress and anxiety that mm-hmm. they feel like they can't break through and is what's holding them back from showing up um, sometimes at all, but definitely as their best self once they arrive. Yeah. And this is, again, something that is very commonly experienced where we have this almost like we have these two parts of ourselves, right? One part of us really wants to do it. And the other part of us really doesn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, who's going to win on any given day? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a lot of that comes down to actually two things. One, 
it's a mindset piece. It's the way that we're looking at the challenge. And then secondly, just our own ability to regulate our own nervous system. Right. And, and um, so we can talk to both of those. So uh, the first one mindset, uh, it's really interesting to think about what we, the meaning we assign to, to challenges. So sometimes by default, without realizing it, we we associate challenge with risk and danger, and that will automatically put us into a place of like like a threat state. So so we see the show or the competition as an opportunity to fail, to hurt ourselves, to embarrass ourselves, you know, to be stressed, and all of that creates this association with like threat, and so then we're sort of naturally inclined then to, to want to avoid that thing almost from like a place of self-protection. And that just goes back to really early evolutionary, you know, um, trends in the way that our brain developed and that our brain is always scanning for possible threats. And it's very quick to, um, to label something as a threat and activate our fight freeze or flight response in response to that threat as a way of trying to equip us to, to, to deal with it. What that can feel like in real life, you know, experience is that we think about the show, we have this unconscious association with the show as a threat. And then we suddenly get this rush of anxiety and stress. And we feel really out of control sometimes in our bodies. We feel like we can't get that back under control. And we think like, no, I can't handle this. Like, you know, this, I'm not even at the show yet. And this is how I'm feeling. How am I going to cope when I'm actually there? So what we need to do is think about shifting the meaning that we're, that we're kind of assigning to this idea of challenging ourselves. And this has to be very intentional because remember our kind of default mode is to, is to associate it with like threat and danger. So we have to like override that very intentionally by deciding and then almost like repeating to ourselves over and over again, that we are choosing the challenge. We want to be challenged. We have signed up for struggle and challenge. That's why we are equestrians. The challenge is a hugely positive opportunity. This is how I get to grow and, and stretch myself and my, and my skills and my ability. Um, it's really comes down to this, 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 this uh, reminding yourself that this is something I'm choosing and I'm choosing it because it's something I want and value and desire to have in my life. And so that can help us uh, step more into that like approach feeling of like, yeah, actually, this is something I'm choosing. This is something I want to do. Now, that doesn't necessarily remove all of the nerves, but it can help us get to a place where the nerves aren't totally taking over our system. It's important to know that we need some nerves in competition, right? If with no nerves, we would be totally flat and actually not be performing to our best. Okay. I think <laughs> that I really, I really, really love that and appreciate the way that you explained the challenge and sometimes how we perceive it as, as risk or danger or threat. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we have talked about this, you know, together on the podcast that sometimes we, I, I personally would say, I'm here for fun. I'm doing this for fun. And now that I hear you say that, it's almost like, sure, that's true, but it's almost like a little bit flaky and it's not really real. Like, mm-hmm. I think your way of putting it feels more true and and that we could 
approach it in that way more honestly than just telling ourselves like, I'm doing this for fun. I'm doing this for fun. When really you're like, no, you have to go out there and you have to win and you have to do it right. And, you know, and try hard, but you're trying to like override that with just this little, like, this is fun. And and I almost got emotional when you said that Mm -hmm. because I sent my son to school today And it's funny how we like see things in parenting and then we relate it to our horse world. And sometimes there's like a disconnect, but he's learning to read. He's in grade one and he's like a really good reader. And so they bring home three books a week and they are told to decide whether they're too easy, too hard or just right. And lately, every single one has been just right or too easy. So he went today. It was his day to pick out new books. And I said, buddy, I'm going to give you a challenge today. Your challenge is to find a book that you think is too hard. And we're going to practice with the too hard book because I want you to feel like you're working hard and that you can read that book, even though you think it's too hard. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, he went in all ready to go. And I was just like, wow, I'm trying to instill that in him. And yet we as equestrians start to see the challenge as a threat. Or the, you know, doing something hard is, is a threat to us. And I, I really do believe what you're saying that like inside our nervous system is reacting that way. Yeah. It's interesting when we think about this question of fun, right? So, so by, by what you were just describing there, where you're saying, I'm just here to have fun. I'm just here to have fun. The, the, the connotation there with the way you're using the word fun, feels to me like it's almost like you're trying to say to yourself, this doesn't really matter. None of this really matters, right? Mm-hmm. Which isn't true. And so we know somewhere deep down that actually that's not true, that it does matter to us. It is very important to us. And so I think that's why it's almost like you're trying to trick yourself there, but it's not really working because deep down we know that it does matter. Um, and so I think it's really important to, um, and actually this is a really common tactic for people trying to take the edge off. They try to they try to trick themselves into feeling like it doesn't matter or it's not as important because then it sort of feels like if it's not as important, um, then I don't care as much about the the imp- the results and therefore I don't need to be as stressed. But that is denying a core reality, which is that it is really important to us. And so the the solution is to recognize that it's not it's not an either or. It's not a care about this and I'm stressed to the max, or I don't care about this and I'm relaxed, that there's actually a midpoint there where we say, we acknowledge that it's important to us. And we go, yeah, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm putting in effort and, and, um, and facing this challenge because it is important to me. It does matter to me, but it's not so important that one little mistake is going to like ruin everything. Like it's not life or death, right? Um, so we find that balance point by reminding ourselves that like, we're here, we, we're choosing the experience of being challenged. And part of that experience is struggle. Part of that experience is making a mistake and or failing, um, so that we can learn and improve and keep striving for excellence. And it does matter to us, but I'm also going to, sorry, it does matter to me, but I'm also going to choose to be um, compassionate with myself when it doesn't go according to plan so that I can keep improving. So that's sort of that, that balance point. Um, and it's nice to, 
to think about incorporating like a different type of fun. So fun is typically talked about as like, it's like easy, breezy, it doesn't really matter, right? So we, we imagine like being on holiday on the beach is fun and we've got no responsibilities, like hanging out on a beautiful patio with our girlfriends, drinking wine is fun. It's like this like really loose kind of vibe, right? That is not the fun that we get through request your support. <laughs> and we shouldn't try to fool ourselves into thinking that's the type of fun we're having because it's a totally different type of fun. And so a term that I learned from a mentor of mine, um, Dave Fries, which I've always held on to because I love it, is um, high performance fun. Mm. And it's, we need to build this understanding that high performance fun is very different from like casual chill fun, vacation fun. Um, high performance fun only comes on the other side or as you're going through struggle. So it's the fun you get as a direct result of the, of being challenged and taking on a big challenge and um, experiencing the struggle of that and getting to the other side and and being like, oh, that was amazing. <laughs> I, I did that, right? Very, very different. And so we need to be clear on what type of fun we're in pursuit of um, in these situations. That is a perfect response to that. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. High performance fun. Mm -hmm. Okay. I had one thing come up and that is what do you do with discouragement? So, you know, you've set yourself up to go into the show and whether it be your own expectation or a coach's expectation or a parent's expectation, you know, if, if that, feeling of discouragement is there where's the shift I had an interesting and I'm going I'm I like I this episode's not coming out right away but my daughter needs to hear it hmm. so she's going into her second competition she's nine this this weekend and the last competition she's doing a sorting cattle sorting competition and they can see on the tv their results throughout the day and she watched herself sit in last place at her first competition the entire day. Mm -hmm. And she would leave the arena and go to the TV as soon as she was done. And mm -hmm. she has not talked about going and competing ever again. She's being told that she's going to compete on Sunday. Um, mm -hmm. And I know right now that she felt discouraged all day, even though we're you know, she knows that she's a good rider and she knows that she has the ability and her horse has the ability, but it was just like a kick in the pants for her first competition of like, this is a tough lesson. So mm -hmm. how do we deal with that discouragement in order to like, all right, here we go. We're going to pick up and go do it again. Mm -hmm. So there are I think it's important to recognize that the score is only one way to win, only one one reflection of winning at a competition. And this can be a great thing to teach people young, actually, to help them kind of balance that experience of competing. Um, because competition is like has so many variables that are completely out of our control. And we all know that anyone who's competed a lot in their life knows that like it is entirely possible for you to execute the most amazing preparation and training program that, you know, brings you to an absolute perf perfect point of readiness, you know, for that show. And yet for things to still happen that are, you know, out of your control that influence the results in a way that, that you wouldn't want. So we kind of want to 
we want to keep reinforcing this this sense of of resilience, this willingness to co- keep coming back and facing that challenge of competition and putting yourself up in direct, um, you know, comparison really with others, which is kind of what competition does. Um, by recognizing that there are there's lots of different ways to win, and if we if we get overly focused on the score winning that can distract us from focusing on the aspects that we actually do have control over, um, which then actually influence our ability to get the score to win, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, we want to think about like, what does it mean for me personally to win at a competition that doesn't have anything to do with the score? So like, what are the behaviors and outcomes I'm looking for that I have full control over? So that's about like how we show up, how we prepare, how we manage our mind, how we react to mistakes when they happen um, and our ability to, you know, I like to throw like looking for, for high performance fun, actively looking for high performance fun as part of the experience um, is a big win if we can do that consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because we are ultimately, ultimately always in partnership with our horses, it can be nice to consider what does it look like for us to win as, as a partnership, right? So what am I looking for in terms of the way my horse and I relate to each other um, the, the way that I care for and, and look after my horse and the way that I respond to my horse's mistakes? Um, you know, again, those are all aspects of how we can identify that there's lots of ways to win as a partnership. And so, again, this is something my mentor always said to me, you know, and it always really resonated with me is that um, that like being a champion is about the first, those other two, it's not about the score winning. It's about getting really good at winning personally and winning to, as a team or a partnership. And what's really interesting is that the better we get at those two things, the more often the score wins. Um, but it's, again, it's all comes back to that, something that's very commonly talked about in sports psychology, which is control the controllables. But I think that that's a phrase that's like thrown around a lot, but something that actually very few of us really dig into and fully understand and implement on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's- that was so good. And, you know, as, as you were talking, I was hearing that um, example from Brene Brown. I'm not sure which book it was, but her daughter mm-hmm. doing the swim meet and she mm-hmm. just yes. swims and swims and swims. And that was her win was that she finished yeah. the competition, even though she was last. And yeah. Those are really good examples to take to Blake. Nikki. Yeah. That oh, she's going to be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And those are the big lessons that we are forced to learn through competition. Right. So um, there's so much value in that. It's, it's so, it's such a character development, developing experience. Right. And that's part of what we, what we're doing in sport. Like we're, we're trying to become high performers, but we're also becoming better people. I think as a result mm-hmm. of putting ourselves through these experiences and learning how to manage them. I'm going to be hearing your voice in my head all through the show <laughs> season. Everybody just like save this episode of the podcast so that you know you can go back to it because <laughs> this is an important one. This is a really good one going into show season and mm. a lot of good things to hear. And Nikki, I don't know if you had, was there anything else that we didn't cover, Annika, that you think would be really important to get out there to people? before we wrap it up? Maybe just as like one final concept, I think that's really useful for, for questions to recognize is that um, confidence is a skill. It's, mm-hmm. it's just something that we learn through practice in the same way that we learn to ride a canter transition um, or sit the trot. 
And where we can sometimes get hung up, hung up is that we assume that confidence is a trait, that it's something you either you're born with or you're born without. And a lot of us make this assumption because we don't feel confident a lot of the time that we're one of these non-confident people. And that actually holds us back from just figuring out how to get better at confidence and, and practicing being confident. And so just that simple mindset shift can really open you up to getting curious about what actually makes you feel more confident um, and helps you start to like work with your confidence in a really intentional way. So, and that just opens up all sorts of, of doors and learning that can help you then go on to, to actually feel way more confident than you may currently realize is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think too, that I, there might be a misconception of what confidence actually feels like and that confidence is not the absence of nervousness or not the absence of fear. Um, It's our ability to, you know, have those feelings and still step into it as our best competitive self or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's It's about believing in your capacity to learn and improve as opposed to feeling like uh, you have to, you can only be confident if you can do this or do that. Um, You know, it's, if you can really tap into this idea that I'm capable of learning anything I put my mind to, I'm capable of, of developing and and mastering any skill that I put time and effort into um, that forms a really nice solid foundation for confidence and also then helps, helps shift our focus towards figuring out how to, uh, you know, master those skills, which is a much more helpful focus than worrying about what we're currently able to do. Mm-hmm. Can I ask one more question to Dean and I'll, I'll try to just kind of keep it short, but the thought that I'm having here would be, what do you suggest to someone who is needing to reframe physiologically what they're feeling? So mm-hmm. whether they're interpreting what their body signals are telling them as either excitement or anxiety. How do they go about stepping into that show pen and saying, you know, this is a safe feeling for me to have mm-hmm. in this situation? So I really like to replace the word like stress or nerves or excitement with the with the idea of just activation. Mm-hmm. So the more stress stressed we are, like it's sort of the more activated our nervous system is, and that can feel really overwhelming for us. And we all interestingly sort of have like a threshold of activation that we're comfortable with. And then once we go over that threshold, we we feel unsafe. And so all of us are capable of, of building and expanding our own threshold to, to be, to feel safer, holding higher levels of activation. Um, one thing that's really important to recognize is that our horse's activation levels influence our activation levels. So that's why when our horse is feeling very explosive underneath of us, that can bump us up into a like above our threshold where we feel like we're not able to to hold that that power. Um, sometimes you, you you see riders who um, they get on a new horse and just that new horse has so much more power in its canter, for example that they actually feel really unsafe. They're just, their their body isn't used to even that much, even just the activation that's coming from that powerful canter. Um, because they're not used to it, it pushes them over their threshold and they feel unsafe, even though that horse is totally safe. There's just more motion, right? Um, so, but then as that rider like um, climatizes to that new canter, their threshold increases and, and, and so on and so forth. So we're always kind of expanding our, our threshold. 
Um, so what we want to do is just like recognize that activation actually is something that aids performance. Um, if we had no activation in our system, we would be totally flat and we would, we just wouldn't perform to our best. Like there's no way we'd make all sorts of careless mistakes. It would be almost like if you were to imagine doing like the easiest, most boring thing you could do, like imagine the whole competition was like, you had to go ride 50, 20 meter circles at the trot. <laughs> like we would zone out halfway through that, you know, you wouldn't do it very well probably because it would just be so boring. It would be so below your, your skill level. Um, so the, like we need a bit of activation in order to focus and put in the appropriate amount of effort. So relabeling nerves as activation can be really helpful because it helps us to recognize that actually there's a positive element to that. And then it's all about um, just dialing back a little bit. So if you're to imagine your activation like a speedometer, if you're like way up at like 180 kilometers an hour, that's too much. <laughs> and so that is, um, that's, we're going to be overwhelmed by our activation levels at that stage. We're going to, it's going to contribute to a lot of anxiety, um, the symptom of anxiety in our system and sort of like that uh, scrambled mind feeling where we struggle to think clearly. And so what we want to do is just kind of dial back to the point where we feel that activation, but it's not overwhelming us. And we do that by, by reframing, by thinking differently about the challenge, like we talked about before. And another really simple way to do that from just a physiological perspective is to start to be really intentional about the way that we're breathing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll keep this short because I know we're, we're short on time here. This is something that, and I encourage people to look into this more because there's a lot here. But essentially, if you're only breathing, breathing into your chest, which many of us have the habit of doing, that is um, activating our um, the nervous system that is that uh, fuels our fear response. Okay, and so um, what we need to do is get really good at learning how to breathe into our stomach using our diaphragm muscles, um, and that actually stimulates our vagus nerve in a different way, which which sends messages all through our body that we're okay and we can relax and we can chill. So a great way to play with this is just literally to put a hand on your chest, hand on your stomach, and then practice taking in deep breaths and just like notice where is the air going? If the air is only going into your chest, then your the hand on your chest will lift and the one on your stomach will stay still. And so you want to play with it and try to figure out how to pull the air deeper into your stomach so that uh, the hand on your stomach lifts as you inhale and goes down as you exhale. Um, that is just the starting point towards becoming more aware of our breathing, but it has a remarkable impact on our nervous system. And it can be the thing that takes the edge off enough that we go from, I'm not okay. I'm out of control here. I'm overactivated to actually, okay, there's activation in my system, but I'm in control here. I've got this. It's what I need to be sharp and perform at my best. Well, that was fabulous. Yeah, it <laughs> is. Feel, it was. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we need to do an episode on great our breath work and breath work yeah. for horses I feel yeah. like that would be yeah I think that would be great there's so much there and it's just it's a huge huge uh part that people often roll their eyes at mm -hmm. they're like breathing yeah <laughs> but like holy smokes it is essential um and I have a client actually recently who like just changing her breathing completely changed the way that her horse was jumping mm -hmm. and the, wow. the way that she, it was it's been it's been amazing the impact it's had um, so yeah, it's a powerful tool. Definitely more to be talked about. Cool. 
Yeah. I mean, even just listening to you say that brought up so many more questions that I'm not going to ask right now, but I do need to do this again because it, it honestly, like it brought up things about like visualization and, and mm-hmm. not just, um, dealing with the struggles, but also like of how to like hit those goals and, and like how to really succeed, which we didn't really even talk about in terms of like, you know, if we're, we got all that under control, then like, how do we go in there and like, you know, really knock it out of the park. So, and like set us yeah. up for success. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess before we say goodbye, I'm just wondering how do you relate with your clients? Like, how, are you taking new clients? If somebody is interested in what you're doing and they want to work with you, is that possible? Where can they find you? That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I am taking new clients at the moment. Um, I usually am because there's usually like a fluid flow of kind of people coming through and then kind of graduating from it and and moving on or needing less frequent support. So absolutely. um, Always reach out if you need help. Um, I work with people all over the world because of uh, the wonderful, you know, usefulness of zoom and all that. And um, so the best way to reach me would probably be just through my website, which is my name, um, AnnikaMcGivern.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at AnnikaMcGivern.performance. So both of those are, are great ways to reach out and, and just say hello. Um, I always offer an initial kind of free chat. So if you're just curious and wondering, you know, is this for me? Is this something I could benefit from? Um, just get in touch and we can set up that chat and just have a look and see whether or not it's something that that would be useful for you. Um, having said that, I, I really do firmly believe that this work benefits everyone. And um, I've, I've lived it myself. It was such a huge part of, of me becoming um, a much better, more competent competition writer myself, because I had a lot of nerves and anxiety when I was young. And so um, even if things aren't feeling particularly challenging at the moment, it can be so useful to get a handle on these skills ahead of time so that you're really prepared to meet the next challenge that kind of comes down the line. And um, it's been really inspiring to see over the past couple of years, how the question industry is really opening their minds to this aspect of the sport. And as we said earlier, it has such beautiful ripple effects for mental health as well. And just feeling, helping people just feel more well, you know, in their pursuit of, of performance in their sport. And it's a really nice addition to um, what we're looking to do on our off season. So, you know, mm-hmm. like when you take a step away from your horses on, on your off season, what's a way for you to better yourself as not only a person, but as an equestrian? Well, this sort of work, it, it just lends to that nice preparatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't even know. I just feel like it's a great addition to any sort of program, but especially when we're like, Oh, I don't really, you know, I'm down. This is my downtime. I'm not, my horse is just out getting chubby in a field. Well, Mm-hmm. What a wonderful opportunity. Yeah. And actually to that end, um, I often do group work as well. So if there's people listening to this who are thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to do it one-to-one, but I feel like there's an interest at my barn or my stable for to do like a group workshops or um, kind of come at this from a place of group learning. I do facilitate those as well all the time. And those can be really fun because they can be like a real team building exercise as well. It can help you get to know, you know, your, your peers at the barn better and also helps everyone realize, like we were saying earlier, that like this is totally a shared experience. And that it's something we can actually be doing a much better job of supporting each other with. Yeah, it, it's 
it's really good. And I think we are proponents of, you know, mental health and getting therapy in any different part of your life. And we talk about this equestrian life as if it exists in a bubble, but there's so much more of our regular life and family life and everything else that adds to the stress of our equestrian life. Mm -hmm. And I think that just having that extra help with our equestrian performance is only helpful do you do, do people sign up for a coaching plan, like several different, um, steps in the process, or can they just set up like a one-time thing? Like, this is what I want to kind of set myself up for success, or this is the issue that I'm having. Can we just have like an hour chat or something like that? Yeah, totally. I, I, I really allow for a lot of flexibility and the way that I work with each individual, because every individual often just, you know, needs slightly different types of support. Um, I, most clients will do at least three to six sessions with me because they find that they get the most value out of it. But I do occasionally get someone who they just come and yeah, it's a one hour call and they kind of get the answer to the question they need and they're able to go and implement it. And then that's great, you know? And so if people, sometimes people ask me like, well, how many sessions do I need? And I always say, well, that's really up to you. Um, And typically, you know, three to six is is a good place to start in terms of really, really kind of understanding uh, the, the core, ide- core issues that are going on and really getting some strong strategies in place to, to tackle them. Um, I have some clients who I work, cons- I worked consistently with over several years now, and that kind of ebbs and flows according to the season. As you said, we'll often do like a deep dive in the off season and then through the competition season, it'll look more like just check-ins if, and when it's needed. Um, and yeah, so, so it is actually very flexible and really can be tailored to whatever that individual athlete needs. Amazing. Well, Annika, we have to thank you. This might have been one of my favorite episodes, Nadine. I mean, I might say that every time, but I, <laughs> it, I felt like it's such a, a, a really important chat to have. And I feel like it, it opened up the conversation to places that you know, maybe we aren't as willing to go into like the, I'm just here for the fun conversation. I think it's really important. So thank you, Annika. Thanks for being so open and honest about your work and and the struggles of equestrians. And we appreciate you being here. It's been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to send us some love is by sharing about Canada Horse Podcast with your friends, finding us on Instagram, and leaving a review is always appreciated. With your support of the show, you are making a positive impact on our horse world. Until next time. Right on, Canada.